We'll give the rest time to Wayne. Pray for the technology. My wife and I have had the privilege of sharing in many different churches here recently. It's good to be back here at home. I'm thinking of a church in Washington, New Hampshire that we visited October 22nd, actually. We're going to talk about that today, too. And I remember the, the wooden floors, and I remember the, the pews on the outside and the pew in the middle, and the aisles on the outside, and they had the wood stove in the back, and they had the creosote that had the, the uh, exhaust out, and it would leak creosote, so they leaked it in the walkway instead of on the parishioners. And I think about today, what a cold day it is with the snow. And I don't know about you, but I wonder, what did they find what was there? You and I jumped in a car and hit the heater and came to church today. They took bricks out of their fireplace and they wrapped them in towels and they put them in the sleigh and they went in the snow. What was there? What did they find that would make them want to go to church? I remember visiting a church a little while back, several years ago actually, and there was a little old lady, a faithful member, she had her walker, and she would take a step, and she would say, help me, Jesus, and she would take another step. And it really annoyed people because it took her a long time to get where she was going. And I would sit there Sabbath after Sabbath, and I would look at her, and I'd watch her. And I said, what is that lady finding here? What is worth that much effort? And I want to take us on a little trip today back to our history. And I want to ask you, why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? Is it because of the monthly fellowship meal? I pray not. Is it because of the people that go here? Appreciative for them. I pray it's not. And we're going to talk about this morning how the Seventh-day Adventist church came into being. And I pray that we're here because Christ brought us. I pray that we're here because we heard it, saw it in God's word. Because when the tough times quit, or when your friend quits, or your parents quit, you will quit with them. And there's some tough times ahead. And we need to have Christ bring us here. And we don't leave until Christ releases us, until he comes in the clouds. Think about today, why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? Let's pray, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Sabbath day. Father, we thank you for the snow and just for the reminder of the new start that you want to, to make in us. Father, help us to be willing. Help us to be more like you. I pray today that you will help me as I share the things that you put on my heart, that we all might look to you, that we might remember how you've done things in the past, how you're working today, and with confidence we can know that you will work in the future. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Many of you know that my wife and I work with Adventist World Radio, and we have a yearly conference. And this year, they decided to have a conference on the bus. And they took us to the northeastern United States, and we toured several Adventist heritage sites. And I'm going to tell you, it's a real blessing. It's beautiful to be able to read these stories in the Bible. And for many of you that, that know your Adventist history, the different leaders in that as they were coming up, to be able to see those houses and to see that this is something very recent, that this is something that God has ordained, the way he brought these people together and the way that his word motivated people and touched their hearts and, and that God has a work for each and every one of us to do. Maybe your gift is special music. Maybe your gift is children. There is no one here under the sound of my voice who does not have a work that God has ordained for you. There is something that each and every one of us should be doing, can be doing, and you will find your true happiness in that, in doing that. You see the website adventistheritage.org. You can visit several, <clears throat> excuse me, you can visit several of the different homes and several of the different places. 
I'm going to show you pictures today of the different ones who are involved in this. As a Seventh-day Adventist, listen to me carefully, as a Seventh-day Adventist, I want to say that we're not special. We are, but we aren't. I've heard many times that, that we're somebody. And what we have is a special responsibility to share Christ with others. I don't so much want us to be, I'm thankful for the Seventh-day Adventists. Don't misunderstand me. But we have all these offshoots and all this other stuff. And when people ask you, what do the Seventh-day Adventists believe, what do we start telling them? Sabbath and all these other things. What if we tell them that we believe this? Our founders believed this. And in this, what do you think they're going to find? They're going to find Jesus. and They're going to find, I believe, the Seventh-day Adventists. This is where I'm at now. It came from a study of the Bible. Let's take people back to the Bible because I only have so much influence. It's not much. It's a little bit. But if I can get them interested in the Bible and I go home and I go to sleep and they open their Bible up, who's with them? And how much power does he have? All power. I don't want them listening and looking to me. I want them listening and looking to Christ. Seventh-day Adventists have been cut set aside. We have a major responsibility and a work to do. I don't want to undercut that. But let's be people of the book. Let's uplift this. And you're going to see why that's so important earlier. That's actually how this church came into being. The Seventh-day Adventist church is people from the book. And what is the third angel's message? Come out of her, my people. That's how this church started. Bible-believing, Bible-reading people. And they are still coming out today. God is not done yet. He still has people that he is reaching out to. So we want to lift up, uplift the Bible. Uplift Christ. And just be patient. Not on your time scale, on God's. You know where they're going to go. You know what's going to happen. But the biggest thing is when problem and troublesome times come, they won't go out the door. Those that join the Seventh-day Adventist Church will leave. Those that join Christ will stay. And that's what we need with the days ahead. I'm reminded of Revelation 12, 11, And they overcame him. Who's him? Satan. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, Christ. And the first and foremost thing that we need is Christ. If I could only give you one thing, I'd have to give you two. I can't just give you one. It would be Christ. The other one would be prayer. We need both of those. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto death. Have you testified of God this week? Have you told anyone about what he's done? We should be. We have much to be thankful for. When we went on this tour, and I'm going to share this tour with you this morning. I'm going to take you, if you will, on a virtual tour, if you will. We went to the general conference in, in uh, Silver Springs, Maryland. And on the wall is this plaque. And it says, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget how the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. Do you believe that? Have you seen God lead in your past? That gives me the confidence. God did not create the world and leave it. He is alive and well and he is working. And so I know in the future when I face whatever problem it is that's coming tomorrow, I know where my help is. I know that Christ has this. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible that wanted people to remember times in the past? We often look back at the past, but it's just a wallow in the sorrow. If we look back in the past, let's look at how God has led. What about Moses? Did he look back before his death? Did he talk to the people? Did he encourage them in what God had done? What about on a smaller scale? What happened last night down there at the school? Communion? Agape feast? What are we doing? We're partially looking back. We're remembering what God has done. We're giving thanks for what he's doing now. And we've said this before, what is communion? What, what is one of the big things about communion? Looking forward to heaven and communion with our Lord again. We want to look back. We want to remember the promises. We want to look forward with confidence that the same God that did it then can do it now. 
How many of you have seen this DVD, Tell the World? This is an awesome little DVD. If you haven't seen it, you can watch it on YouTube. It's going to have a few commercials. Um, but you can watch this, and this gives a very good history of how the Seventh-day Adventist Church came into, into being. What two things have started every revival, every true revival in history, regardless of the church? There's two things needed for a true revival. What's the first one? We can start with prayer. What's the second one? Bible. Prayer and Bible. If I could only give you two things, this is what I would give you. And if you had these two things, you have everything. Have you ever heard of William Miller? I know you have. William Miller grew up in Lowhampton, New York. And in 1803, he married Lucy Smith. William worked as a constable, a deputy sheriff, justice of the peace. And William Miller served in the Vermont militia and was commissioned a lieutenant in 1810. Around this time, Miller became a deist. You know what that is? God set the world in motion, and he left. He doesn't have involvement with it. I don't believe that. But William Miller did. But God was working on William Miller's heart. At the outbreak of the war in 1812, Miller raised a company of local men and went to war. He worked as a recruiter until February 1814. Miller was then promoted to captain, and his first battle was the Battle of Plattsburgh. The Americans were severely outnumbered, and one shell exploded about two feet from him, wounding three and killing one of his men. But Miller didn't have a scratch. Miller began to think. He began to wonder about a God who didn't intervene with the lives of his children. And it caused him some problems because he couldn't explain what he had just seen. Sometimes it takes time for that to build. And Miller is, is thinking about this and he has questions. He's going to begin searching for answers. Shortly after William Miller was discharged, he, brought the, he bought this home in Lowhampton, New York. Back then they had, instead of having a message like we're sharing today, they would have a message that you would literally read, a Bible reading. And so if the pastor wasn't there, they would look to someone and they would ask him if they would read. And one day William Miller was asked to read a sermon for church on Sunday. While he was reading this, he was convicted to find out about God. Who was this God that he was reading about? And friends, this is why we want to stress the Bible. Get them looking at the Bible. Get them looking at Christ. I want to share with you William Miller's own words. Suddenly the character of a Savior was vividly oppressed upon my mind. It seemed that there might be a being so good and compassionate as to himself atone for our transgressions and thereby save us from suffering and the penalty of sin. Have you seen that Savior in the Bible? Do you know him? William Miller began to study his Bible he didn't study it to make it say what he wanted. He wanted to see what the Bible said, and he would only read it as fast as he could understand it. And he read through the Bible. When he got done, he went back and he read it again. When he got done, he went back and read it a third time. And by the third time, he had a pretty good understanding. And he began to see 1844, that something was supposed to happen here, and he thought that Christ was coming back. And he began, became convicted of many different things. And he and his wife were talking one night, and she told him, she said, you need to go share this. And he said, I don't want to. I'm just a little farmer. I'm not a preacher. And they had a little discussion about it. And William Miller made a covenant with God. Friends, be careful about that. It will be the most amazing ride you've ever had, I promise you. But it will also take you out of your comfort zone. And William Miller said, now mind you, William Miller lived in the country they didn't have the cars. It's hard to come see people. And William Miller made a vow that if he was invited, he would speak. What do you think happened? That evening, during supper, there was a knock on the door. And there was a church without a pastor, and they asked William to come share what he had learned from the Bible. William Miller wasn't real happy about that because he was a farmer, not a preacher. 
And when we toured this, this, this homestead here, we got to see this maple grove. And it said that William Miller went into the maple grove a farmer. And he argued with God, and he came out a preacher. It's not always easy doing what God wants you to do. But your peace, your happiness is in doing what God wants us to do. There is a work to be done. And all of us have a part that we can play in this. William Miller went in the maple grove a farmer and came out a preacher. Before William Miller died, he made a statement that can be found in a book called Early Writings, page 258. Did William Miller ever have any discouragements in his life? Pretty serious ones, right? He shared before people and he believed with all his heart that Christ was coming. And when Christ didn't come, he went back, he studied again, and he realized a mistake, and he set another date. And it was wrong also. What does the Bible tell us about Christ's second coming? No man knows the day or the hour. And I've said it before, if I knew it was in two weeks, I would not tell you. Because there's a chance that some of us won't see two weeks. So I don't know if you know it or not, but William Miller set a third date. I say amen, and I'd like to share that third date with you today. Early writings, page 258. Although I have been twice disappointed, I am not yet cast down or discouraged. I have fixed my mind on another time, and here I intend to stand until God gives me more light. And that is today. 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 I say amen. That's the day I believe in, too. Until he comes. And if we're doing that, we'll be ready when Christ comes. God has an amazing sense of humor, does he not? I love that. I didn't know that. No one ever told me that. When I started reading in the Bible and I started hearing these stories and seeing it in my own life, God has an amazing sense of humor. The house on the screen is the oldest house in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. It was built in 1742, and praise God, it is a historical site with many visitors each year. And the caretakers are really using this to God's benefit. Many people want to learn history, and when they come to see history, guess what they find? They find the Bible. They found God. They find the beginnings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This house, Joseph Bates Sr. moved his family here in 1793. The Joseph Bates that we know of is Jr. Joseph Bates Jr. was one year old when they moved into this house. Joseph went to sea at 15 years old. Very rough. Not an easy time. He worked as a cabin boy, and over the next 21 years, he became captain and part owner of his ship. After retiring from sea, Joseph became active in the temperance movement, forming one of the first temperance societies in America. In 1839, he became a Millerite preacher, announcing the second coming of Christ about 1844. And here's the really important thing, and this is why I said earlier that we must read the Bible, we must see Jesus, and we must follow Jesus, because Joseph Bates was also discouraged in 1844. But do you know what he did? He went back and studied his Bible, but more, inc- more important, he was the one that was probably the most instrumental in encouraging others whose faith was wavering. And what do we want to encourage them? Every answer you need. I don't know. There's many, many problems in here. Every answer you need, you can find that answer in the Bible through prayer. I promise you God has an answer for it. Joseph Bates was very instrumental after the great disappointment in encouraging the brothers and sisters. Back in those days, they didn't have Facebook, false book, whatever you want to call it. They didn't have all these other um, messaging sources. And so you can see this rock wall behind me. Um, This is in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And whenever the ships would come in, everyone would run down to the ships and they would ask them, what's the news? Because they'd been somewhere else and they would, when they came back, they would say, bring the news. What's the news? And so in 1845, Captain Bates came back to Fairhaven, Massachusetts from Washington, New Hampshire, where a lady named Rachel Preston had shared with him about God's Seventh-day Sabbath. I can only imagine the challenge that presented in his mind. He thought he knew the Bible. And here's a lady telling him, he's saying you need to keep the commandments. And she says, you don't do it. 
Would that be a challenge to you? Don't be offended by that. Take a minute. Would you show me from the Bible? Where's your verse? Show me the verse. Let's talk about the verse. Let's talk about the Bible. And when he did that, he became convicted of God's seventh-day Sabbath. So upon returning to New Bedford, Massachusetts, when the ship came up, people came down to meet him at this wall, and they said, what is the news, Captain Bates? And what do you think he said? The seventh day is a Sabbath, and I shall keep it. Would that be a powerful testimony? We don't want to beat anyone up with a baseball bat. Adventists aren't better than anyone else. But do we have something to share? How are we sharing it? Are we sharing it as I know all? Because I don't. And I I really think that you probably don't either. Aren't we all learning and growing? Who does know it all? Where is it all? I want to encourage you to read the Bible. And that's what these early believers did. They came from all the different churches. Where are the Captain Bates of today? Where are those encouraging others? Where are those willing to comfort those having a rough time? Willing to share with others. This is from the SmithsonianMagazine.com. It is from November 17 of 2014. I find it very heartbreaking that many inside the Adventist church have set Ellen White aside. I find it heartbreaking that some in the Adventist church have lifted Ellen White above the Bible. And I would caution against that. Very dangerous. The world realizes there's a gift here. And I pray that you realize there's a gift here also. In 2014, Smithsonian Magazine listed Ellen White as one of the top 100 most influential people. She is the most female translated author in the world. And if you've read some of her writings, you know that God has inspired her. I remember reading one time and she said to do something. She said, I know not why. And I said, what is up with this? You want me to do something and you don't know why? And she said, my angel showed me. Okay. Many years later, it was, she was talking about salt and limiting our salt intake. Many years later, we learned about the salts. God was leading her. So what did I say was our textbook? The Bible is always our textbook. And any good textbook, for those of you who have been in school, have a workbook to go with it, do we not? And I would like to tell you that Ellen White's writings are the workbooks that go with the textbook. And if you don't have a Bible study guide, I have some that will tell you the corresponding spots. So when we read something, we can also read it in the Bible. If you have a God-fearing prophet, what the Bible says, the prophet will say. And if your prophet is God-fearing, what the prophet says, the Bible will say. They are one. They will not go against each other. Start with a beautiful little book called Steps to Christ. Could we all take a few steps closer to Christ? I could. Read the Conflict of the Ages series. It's beautiful. Please, whatever you do, don't use her as a baseball bat. I grew up with some of that. It caused me to push it off to the side. And it was years later when I came back, and I I don't even remember how I got the book Patriarchs and Prophets, but I began to read this textbook, and then I began to compare it to the, the, the workbook and compare it to the textbook. And I had one burning question. Where was that God? Where was the God who led his people in the past? And I began to look, and what do you think I found? That God is alive and well. And he's still leading his people even today. Do you want to be led? Christ is wanting to lead you. If you're interested in church history, I would recommend to you a book called The Great Controversy. It's not called Between Christ and Satan anymore, but truly it is a great controversy between Christ and Satan. If we remember that, it helps us recognize many things that are going on today. This is another beautiful little book that will help us out. This is one of the favorites, and we give this away in the thrift store quite often. I love Jesus. I have a book for you. Read this with the Bible. Learn about Jesus. These textbooks, these workbooks go with the textbook, and they're an awesome combination to be used together, never aside. You can study the Bible by itself, but we should never study Sister White by herself. You know Sister White's story? 
She was injured when she was in the third grade. Someone threw a rock, hit her. She lost a lot of blood. When her dad came home, he didn't even recognize his daughter. That was a pretty big heartbreak for Ellen White. Her own dad didn't recognize her. And Ellen White had a little bit of depression and a little bit of trouble there. And the one thing that she wanted more than anything else was she wanted to see Jesus. And finally, she got up enough confidence one day, and she went to her mom, and she told her mom, she said, I'm really hurting. I, I just, I'm not good enough for Jesus. And I, I just wish I could just see Jesus. And having a godly mother, the mother took her to a pastor. The pastor's name was Levi Stockton. And the pastor sat there and talked with this young child who so wants to know Jesus, so wants to, to meet him and to, to just be in his presence. And I believe that God inspired this pastor because Levi Stockton looked at her and said, such a burden, God must have a work for you. He did. But was God's work for Ellen White? Did you know that there was actually two men before her that were called? William Foy and Hazen Foss? And they would not do what God wanted. And one of them was actually told that he was relieved. Friends, God has a work for you, and we don't want to be found relieved. We don't want to be, I think it was Pilate, almost thou persuadest me. We don't want to be there. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, whatever he is putting on your heart and on your mind, step out in faith and ask him to open wide those doors and step through that. I don't know what your picture of Ellen White is. She was a very normal person. And interestingly enough, on her death when she died, do you know what the local paper wrote about this lady? These weren't Adventist writers. The local paper wrote when Sister White passed, this little lady sure loved Jesus. What are people saying about us? Would they know that you love Jesus? Would they know that you attend church? Do they know that you believe in the Bible? One of the stories that we learned was, we know Sister White was a twin. Her twin's name was Elizabeth or Lizzie. And after the great disappointment of 1844, Lizzie went out of the church. She left. She didn't want to talk about God. And Sister White wrote to her, talked to her, prayed with her, tried and tried to get her to come back. And if you've read some of Sister White's writings, you know that there were many that she prayed for and prayed for and prayed for, and they finally came back in. And this time we don't have that story. It's not finished. We don't know what the story is. God knows. But even Lizzie got sick later on, and Ellen White, of all things, wanted her twin to be in heaven, wanted her to be saved. And Lizzie and Reuben had a baby, and that baby died early. And so on Lizzie's, when Lizzie got sick, and Lizzie... Just before she passed, Ellen White wrote her another letter, and she was reaching out for the last time, and she said, what happens if the baby gets to heaven and there is no mom? And we know that Lizzie read the letter, but we're not told what her response was. I pray that it touched her heart, that her eyes turned back to Christ. I'm sure there's people in your life, in your circle of influence, that you would like to see in heaven. Don't ever give up on them. Reach out for them. And don't be discouraged if you're not getting anywhere. Christ had a circle too. And he couldn't reach everyone in his circle, though he tried. Sister White reached many in her circle. And some still didn't do it. We have free will. Don't take that free will away from anyone. But even Sister White wasn't 100% successful. I know many times we try to be or we think of them as being 100%. They had it. They had pain and heartache that they dealt with also. This is Washington, New Hampshire. And this is where there's actually two churches that fight over the start of the Sabbath day. We were the first church with the Sabbath day. They don't fight over it, but they claim it. We were the first church with the Sabbath day. Um, this is one in Washington, New Hampshire. Maybe you've heard of Cyrus and Williams Farnsworth. They were ones there that went to this church. It started in the 1840s. It was going very strong, and Satan came in, and he tries to mess things up. He's going to try and mess things up in our lives. Don't let it happen. 
By the 1860s, 20 years later, spiritual decline had set in. D.M. Canwright and J.N. Andrews came and tried to work with the church. And unfortunately, they only had limited success. And by 1867, the church had closed. Sister White heard about this. but She wouldn't acknowledge that they had closed. What do you think she did? She sent him a notice and said, I'm coming to speak at your church. I look forward to being with you. And her and James prayed, and they said, we're not going to leave that church until we have an answer. Yes or no, we're not going to force, but we're praying for God to do something in this church. And they got on their sleigh, and they went over to this church. In this church, they had a problem with judgmentalism. They had a problem with bitterness and a general backsliding that had set in among the members. We shouldn't be looking at anyone else. We shouldn't be thinking about anyone else. Do I have this spirit of judgmentalism? Do I have a spirit of bitterness? Am I backsliding? The only one you can fix is the one in the mirror. But it will tear a church apart. And we want to uplift and unite a church. We want to come together side by side. In 1867, James and Ellen White came to this area to conduct a revival series. They held nine meetings, but met with little success. Although, there was some success stories, and it turned everything around. One of those success stories was a reconversion of someone named Worcester Ball. Worcester had become a bitter antagonist of Ellen White. Do we see some of that in the church again today? Don't let that come up in you. But he had a problem with the prophetic gift. And Ellen White went to him and lovingly talked with him and worked humbly with him. And you know that he changed his heart, that he returned to the fold and came back. There was also another one named Williams Farnsworth. He was a pillar in the church. And when J.N. Canwright and Andrews, Canwright and Andrews came the year before and did this seminar, Farnsworth's son, who's named Eugene, came back and he really wanted to follow God. He wasn't sure about the prophetic gift. And as he's watching his dad and and as we look here, William Farnsworth had gone back to chewing tobacco. And the only one who knew that was his son who was working in the woods with him. And he would see his dad spit. And he would see his dad cover that up. And it really caused him a lot of trouble. It caused his son Eugene a lot of trouble. He had seen his father spitting in the snow and covering it up while they were in the woods working together. Eugene was a teenager, and he really wanted to follow God. And so when Sister White came there, he's sitting in the church, and he's watching, and he's listening. And he thinks to himself, if she's really a prophet of God, she will know what my dad is doing. And while Sister White, and I, I praise God for the way that, that her books are written, because it's always Brother G. And I don't know who Brother G was, but I know that Brother G has a problem with that. And though that counsel was written years ago, it's just as effective and just as wise for me today. It's not a baseball bat. It's lovingly shared. It's an area that I need help in. And I pray that as you read her writings, as you read the Bible, that it will speak to you and that you and I can make these decisions for Christ. Eugene is struggling. What about my father? Is this lady real? Is the prophetic gift real? And Sister White's going around the room, and Eugene thinks this. Ellen White was encouraging some members and gently rebuking others. Eugene thought to himself, if she is a prophet, she will know about my dad. She was a prophet. Ellen White turned to Williams Farnsworth and gave a pointed testimony about his use of both pork and tobacco while appearing to be a faithful defender of the faith. She said he was a great hindrance to the work in New Hampshire. Now, friends, before we talk to anyone... We need to make sure that one in the mirror is right. Before you go talk to anyone else, we need to spend a lot of time in prayer. We need to leave the convicting to the Holy Spirit. Okay? I believe Sister White was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and she was calling from the front and talking to these people. Somehow the way she said it got his heart. She said it through the Holy Spirit, I believe. And William Farnsworth repented of his sin, and by God's grace he turned his life around. We have this in the thrift store. If I catch people shoplifting, if I, if I have problems, 
I try to be redemptive. I want them to come back into the store again. It's not retaliatory. It's not anything else. It's redemptive. I believe that's Christ's model. It's a good model for us to model also. At those meetings that they had from December to January, there was 18 young people that gave their lives to Jesus. Nine of these young people would go on to be workers for the church. One of them was William's son, Eugene. These meetings at Christmas time in 1867 became a significant turning point in this area and those present. The story illustrates the powerful impact of the prophetic gift, while it's often used for broad and far-reaching messages. And I pray that it is a blessing to you. It can also be, as we read it, if we're praying, it can be personal in nature, speaking to me as an individual. I don't know about you, but I need some correction in my life. And God can do that through his word and through the spirit of prophecy. I want to share a video with you now. Dennis. Um, at the general conference in the basement is the Ellen White estate is one of them. And they have a mural that is eight feet tall and is 30 feet long. And they play a, a several minute video. And I was able to take that from, uh, from their website. And I want to share that with you today and understand the Seventh-day Adventist church came about because of God's leading. It came about from men and women who studied the Bible, who were praying, who were following God wherever he leads. No matter what I think I know, when I see it in God's word and I'm not doing it, I'm going to change. The Seventh-day Adventist church was started as a movement. What are we moving towards? Christ's return. And I would just like to caution us today to not settle down and become a church, but to remember that we started as a movement to begin moving again closer to Christ's return, to share with others so that they can be ready. I want to play this video. I think it's In 1989, the Ellen G. White estate commissioned Alfred Lee to paint a 30 by 8 foot mural based on Ellen White's first vision. The Christ of the Narrow Way was unveiled in 1991. Since then, it has been seen by thousands of visitors from all over the world. The story conveyed through this acrylic on canvas painting about a people focused on Christ and his return is powerful and increasingly important as the world seems for many to be racing toward random destruction. It all began more than 2,000 years ago when Christ unveiled the future to his prophet Daniel. And then at the opening of the 1800s, at the very time predicted, the religious world stirred with expectation. Sparking this increased spiritual interest was a renewed study of Bible prophecy, especially the books of Daniel and Revelation. In upstate New York, William Miller was studying the scriptures deeply. His Bible study led him and thousands of his followers to conclude that Daniel's 2300-day time prophecy, the longest recorded in the Bible, would end about 1844, at which time they believed Jesus would return to earth. But 1844 came and went, and Christ did not return. Why? What had they misunderstood? In December of 1844, 17-year-old Ellen Harmon was given the first of hundreds of visions and prophetic dreams that she would receive during the next 70 years until her death in 1915. In that first vision, she saw a narrow path with the people of God following Jesus toward the holy city. 
She saw that if they kept their eyes fixed upon Jesus, they would safely reach their heavenly home. Ellen Harmon's vision of the narrow path brought wonderful encouragement to the small group who clung tenaciously to God despite their tears of disappointment. They were motivated to go back to their Bibles. Here they discovered not only the reason for their disappointment, but also other long-forgotten truths of Scripture. In this group were two ministers, Joseph Bates, a former sea captain, and James White, whom Ellen Harmon married in 1846. In western New York State, Hiram Edson and his friends made an important discovery. As they studied their Bibles, they realized that instead of returning to earth in 1844 as they were expecting, Christ had entered the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. There he began to judge both the dead and the living prior to his return to earth. In another providential discovery, Joseph Bates and others realized the importance of keeping holy the Bible Sabbath, the seventh day. Eager to share their findings, they started a little paper in 1849. Ellen White had been shown in vision that despite its humble beginning, this paper would become like streams of light encircling the world. In 1855, a small publishing house was established, the first of many to come. As the fledgling movement grew, the leaders realized their need to organize. In 1860, they chose the name Seventh-day Adventist, and in 1863, the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists was formed, with John Byington elected president. Once they were organized for mission, Ellen White was given a major vision encouraging Adventists to adopt a healthful lifestyle. It would not only enable them to share the gospel message more effectively, but it led the church, including individuals such as Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, to establish medical institutions around the world to help others enjoy better health based upon those God-given principles. Ellen White was shown that the work of education and redemption is one. True education goes beyond book knowledge. The physical, mental, and spiritual qualities of life should be combined as part of the process of education. In response, Adventists started schools at all levels to guide students to a better understanding of the Bible and God's creation, equipping them to share their faith through service to others. In 1874, the church sent J.N. Andrews to Europe as its first official missionary. A virtual explosion of mission endeavors followed, utilizing all forms of travel, from trains to planes, mules to motorcycles, and cars to ships, such as the Pitcairn, Morning Star, and Luzero. Since that modest beginning, many thousands have answered the call to service in Africa, Asia, the Americas, as well as the South Pacific. They have joined in sharing the end-time good news proclaimed by the three angels found in the book of Revelation, a message enriched in 1888 by a fresh emphasis on Christ and his gift of righteousness. What started as a movement in humble homes and small rural churches in the northeastern corner of the United States now encircles the globe. It is destined to end with even more power than when it began. The swelling call about Jesus' soon return is being announced by peoples of all races and nationalities, men and women, young and old, rich and poor. Each innovation in technology provides new and more effective methods for imparting the good news of our faith, from the printed page, to radio and television, to the Internet. Today, you are invited to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and as part of His remnant people, to unite with Him in finishing the mission. The mission of sharing the message of a soon-coming Savior with all the world.
That's something. Friends, I remember reading the Bible several years ago. I read the Great Commission to go into all the world. And I thought to myself, how is that going to happen? God, I don't understand. And as I'm beginning to read Patriarchs and Prophets, and I'm wondering where this God is, and he's got these big plans, and I'm wondering, what am I supposed to do? And I remember reading a verse that said, Pray ye the Lord of the harvest. The harvest is plenteous, but the workers are few. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest, he'll send workers. And I said, I can do that. And in the back of my mind, I still wondered how this gospel would go to all the world. And I was still asking God how that was going to happen. And it was probably two or three years later, I stood in a little church called Lone Pine, California. It's right behind, right in front of Mount Whitney. As I shared a message that day, and then we hiked up, and and that afternoon we hiked up, and I began talking to people. Do you know that Mount Whitney, people come from around the world? And I began to get a little glimpse of God. And I thought, wow, I don't have to go to the world. He will bring the world to us to fulfill his word. Several years ago, I was standing in Creston, Canada. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, God. You just took me outside the United States. I'm nobody special. I've just found some answers in the Bible and they work. And though we don't understand God's word, it's going to happen. I think this is my fifth week of sharing from Adventist World Radio. Last week we were in Deer Park. Next week we're going to be in Plummer. This was not my plan. Remember when I said that God will take you out of, out of your comfort zone? God has a plan for each and every one of us. Why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? While we can't pick our family, do you know that we can pick our heavenly family? Who have you told about Christ's return? Are you sharing Christ? Today I challenge you to remember how God has led in the past. To remember how God is leading you today. And more importantly, how an unchanging creator God will lead you in the future. Jesus is coming back soon. I believe it with all my heart. Do you know there will be no selfish people in heaven? You have to tell someone. We must, by using God's eyes, see others as he sees them. We must have his heart. And when they're hurting, we need to help as Christ would help. God has plans for you. He has plans for me. His plans may not be to get you to stand up in front of a group. But I promise you, he has plans for you promise you we should pray for God's hearts for others that our heart will see others as he does that we may see the same value in others that Christ sees in them may we all be faithful may we lovingly share Christ and his prophets to uplift others and never to tear down may God bless you and lead you and guide you today and every day until he comes And I didn't ask permission for this, but I'll ask forgiveness later. We heard of a dear sister's need this morning. And I challenge you to have two deacons at the back door and to make a donation to this cause. When we hear of God's children hurting, we need to step up and we need to help. I hope that we can give something to this cause, that we will help God's children, that we see them as he sees them, and that we can share with this with this lady that you were talking about, Ingrid. Don't let these opportunities pass us by. Christ is coming soon. And I don't even know this dear lady, but I would love to see her in heaven. And I would love for her to say, that church really helped me. It was a turning point for me. I want to make a difference in people's lives as Christ has made in mine. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing hymn, number 290, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus.
Heavenly Father, 